today. Well, it's uh, nice to be back. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. I was teaching at Hume Lake. I did a week of uh, Ponderosa Camp, which is their high school camp, and a week of middle school camp, and now I'm ready for a nap. But before that, uh, I thought we might uh, open God's Word together this morning and continue our series called Call and Response in the book of Exodus. I should also say a word of appreciation to uh, Noel this morning. You know, uh, weekly we've been having people read the text in advance. We all stand in honor of God's Word. And the people that volunteer to read the text, they don't necessarily always know what they're going to get. But nobody expects that they're going to have to start reading about circumcision, you know, on a Sunday morning when they're hoping to just have like a regular day. So she did that like a trooper, and I appreciate her sort of jumping into it. If you will remember, uh, when we left off a couple of weeks ago in Exodus chapter 4, we were looking at a text in which God had very clearly called Moses out of the burning bush, and then there'd been a bit of a dialogue. That's probably a generous way to say that. Uh, there was a bit of a back and forth between Moses and God. Moses had some objections, you might say excuses, and at each point along the way, God answers his objections. God responds to his excuses by pointing Moses back to himself, pointing Moses to God. And ultimately, then Moses, if you'll recall, he says, listen, I just don't want to do it. Remember, he says, please send someone else. And so God, in his anger, you know, he looks at Moses and he's like, you're the one I'm sending, but I will concede. I will send your brother Aaron along with you, who will be your mouthpiece. He will be obedient to you. He will listen to what you say and do what you ask him to do. And although you don't have any idea of this, Moses, he'll be like, He'll be like as if you were God and he were your servant. This is the way this thing's supposed to work, Moses, God says, right? Immediately following that interaction, then we have a, essentially a transitional passage, and that's the passage we're in this morning. In Exodus chapter 4, uh, verses 18 through 31, we see four movements here that are all basically transitional. It's him moving from being a shepherd in Midian to being a liberator in Egypt by the power of God. And what we're seeing is just sort of the preparation for that trip, him sort of walking down this journey to being the guy God's called him to to be. And it it would actually be a, a kind of a almost an unremarkable passage, if not for the third section. So the first section, we see, um, we see Moses talking with Jethro. In the second section, we see God talking to Moses and instilling confidence in him. In the fourth section, we see Aaron, Moses' brother, meeting up with Moses, and they together go and speak to the elders, perform the signs and wonders that God's given them. The elders of Israel believe, and they all worship together. Those things are pretty easy to understand. There's some interesting application we'll look at, but it's the third movement, verses 24, 25, and 26, that really throws the whole thing for a loop, right? Those first, second, and fourth pieces are pretty easy to understand and apply. The third one kind of makes you go, what is going on here? So as we look at this transition, I I sort of want to look at the things that are happening and think of it in terms of preparation for a journey. That God has called Moses on this journey and there, is, uh, there are strategic things that are happening that prepare him for the thing that God has called him to. You know, you've been on trips. I just came back from a two-week trip, like I said, to Hume Lake. And you have to think in advance of what it's going to take, right? You've got to pack all this stuff. You've got to load it all in the car because you're not coming back to your house. So you have to have everything sort of in advance. Like, what are we going to need? My wife and I were even talking this week about the fact that things have changed so much when uh, from the time we had like our very first baby to the way things are now that we've got like four older kids. Like when we had our first baby, if you've had little babies, you know how this goes like, 
If you're going to go on a trip, you've got like the pack and play and the bassinet and the mobile crib and the bouncy thing and the jumpy thing and a billion toys because you never know what the baby's going to want to play. You've got like three suitcases full of clothes because you never know what the baby's going to want to wear. You've got like all these different snack options. You know, like you almost need like a U-Haul truck just to take all the baby stuff for your first baby, right? But by the time you get to your fourth kid, uh, your standards have lowered a little bit. You're maybe a little more relaxed. It's like by the time you go on vacation with the fourth kid, you're like, uh, just give him a stick. He'll be fine, right? If he, gets, <laughs> if he gets bored, he can play with the cup holders in the Honda. And if he gets hungry, he can just eat those fishy crackers that his older brothers dropped there 10 years ago, right? No big deal. Fine. It's interesting how the standard changes over time, you know, how you just get a little more relaxed. You kind of feel bad for that fourth kid. I've got like, I feel like I have a hundred pictures of my first son when he was like a baby, and I maybe have like two pictures of my fourth son when he was a baby. It just, it changes over time. We see in this story of Moses as he's being obedient and he's transitioning into this new role that there are some great moments of attention to detail, some great moments of obedience and faithfulness, but there's also some huge gaps. There are also some places where he's become lackadaisical, some places where he's missed the mark. And we want to see that together. The first thing I want you to see is right there in verse 18, uh, Exodus 4, 18. I love the way this, this transitional section starts. It says in verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now that might seem like an unremarkable verse to you, but I actually really love that verse. I think it's very significant and very meaningful that in the beginning of this transitional section of Moses' life, that right out of the gate we see him being courteous to his father-in-law. And you might go, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a big difference. I think it's actually really striking that Moses goes to Jethro and says to his father-in-law, will you give me permission to go on this journey? Because here's the thing. God has already called him in no uncertain terms, right? God met him in the in the flames of a bush that would not be consumed by fire, and God answered all of his objections, God has clearly said, Moses, you are the guy that I'm gonna use to reach my people, so now go. It would have been very easy for Moses to have walked into Jethro's house and said, hey, Pop, I gotta let you know, uh, you're gonna need to find somebody else to watch your sheep because God has called me on a powerful mission. That's right, I'm, I'm God's man and he's gonna use me in a powerful way and so you're just gonna have to figure it out. By the way, I'm taking your daughter, I'm taking your grandkids, we're going to Egypt, I need to have one of your donkeys. Deal with it, right? I think sometimes, and we, we, you know, I hear sort of a ripple of laughter, but I think sometimes in light of the, call, the clear calling of God in our life, sometimes what that produces in the people of God is a sense of arrogance, a sense of discourtesy, if you will, towards other people. That we go, well, God has called me to this, and this is what he's anointed me to do. And so the feelings and the opinions and the ideas of anybody else, they don't really matter. I'm just going to do it. And who cares what people think? I love the fact that Moses sits down with his father-in-law. This is the guy who provided a home for him when he was a refugee. It's a man who gave him one of his daughters when he had no family of his own. It's a guy, Jethro brought Moses in and has called him his own. And actually, it's, he's been his employer for the last 40 years. Moses owes a lot to Jethro. And so instead of just looking at Jethro and going, hey, I need you to know I saw this burning bush and now I'm out of here, see you later. Moses sits down and asks him, can I have your permission? Will you grant me permission to go 
back to Egypt and see if any of my relatives are still alive. Now, granted, we know Moses was afraid. Maybe he was hoping Jethro would say no, right? And then he'd be able to go back to God and go, oh, my father-in-law says I can't do it, you know? But I don't really think so. I think what we see is a courtesy in response to the heart of people who might not even understand it. You know, Moses takes, um, he takes a little bit of heat from some theologians. They look at this and they go, well, Moses wasn't 100% honest. When he looks at Jethro, he says, I want to go back to Egypt to see if any of my relatives are alive. But that's not really what he was going to do. God had told him that he was going to go in and liberate them all from enslavement. Why didn't he say that to Jethro? He's lying. Well, I don't necessarily know that what we see here is Moses being dishonest to his father-in-law. As much as what we're seeing here is Moses being sensitive to the place where Jethro was. I think if he'd walked in and said, hey, God's going to use me to fight all of Egypt, the strongest military power on the planet, and I'm going to take your grandkids along with me on a donkey, and we may never see you again. I think Jethro might have been really frightened and scared and terrified and frustrated by all of that. They might have been an argument there after all. I like the fact that there is a sensitivity and a compassion, a courtesy we see. It reminds me of Romans 14, 19, which says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 15, 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I think what Moses is trying to do here with Jethro is to explain to him that God has called him away, but to do it in such a way that Jethro can receive it and can bless him. By the way, that's another thing I love about the first verse here, verse 18. How cool is it that Jethro says, go in peace? I don't know that we often think about the great privilege we have to bless the people in our family who are called into ministry. And by the way, we are all called into ministry. So I'm not talking about working at the church. But I can't tell you how many times I talk to young people at places like Hume Lake who go, I want to go onto the mission field and I want to tell people in unreached people groups the gospel. But my parents don't want me to go because they want me to make more money or they want me to go to a fancy school or they want me to have a more reputable position in our culture or whatever. And I find that when, when young people are going to their families and saying, hey, God has, God has placed a calling on my life, a lot of time what they're finding from their family is obstacle, not blessing. You and I, when God places a calling upon our life, there is an absolute sacrifice required of our family. You get that, right? That the calling that God has placed on my parents and my grandparents, the calling that God places on my children, the calling that God places on me, absolutely has a ripple effect in the lives of my family members. There is a sacrifice for everyone to be made when God calls people to his service, and he calls us all to his service, And so we can either fight against that or like Jethro, we can be a blessing. When our children come to us and say, God has called me to this, we have the opportunity to bless them. We don't want to miss that chance. I love the fact that right right here at the beginning of this transitional time, Moses is courteous. I also like the fact that God uh, very purposefully instills confidence in Moses. Look at the next verses. Look at Exodus 4, 19. It says, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. God didn't have to tell Moses this, but he does it to provide some comfort to Moses. Remember, Moses had a death warrant out for him. He was a wanted murderer back in Egypt. And so how cool is it that first God comes to him and says, hey, I want to let you know the people that were trying to kill you are gone, so you don't have to be afraid of that at least, right? That one thing you can check off your list of things to be afraid of. Look at what else God says. Verse 20, Moses took his wife and his sons He had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. 
I want you to stop for a second and think about the staff of God, right? Because there may be like this thing that happens in your imagination where you go, ooh, the staff of God. You know, like that's the kind of thing Indiana Jones should go and find. And if he could find it and we could have it at our church, we'd be the most powerful church ever, you know? No, look, this isn't like a magic stick, right? This isn't like a sacred object that's been imbibed with holy power. Moses is taking with him to Egypt what's called the staff of God. But can I tell you something? Like a chapter before this, that was just called the staff of Moses, right? It was just his regular shepherding crook. It was just the staff that he throws on the ground and it turns into a snake, remember? And he runs from it like a coward. It's that same stick. But the power of God and the movement of God is such that it's able to put incredible use to everyday objects. This isn't a magic staff. It's not something we need to go hunting for. It wasn't carved with runes and topped with a ruby or whatever. No, this is just a shepherd's stick that is now called the staff of God. I wonder if maybe sitting on your desk at work, you don't see and use every day the calculator of God. And I know that seems silly, but do we think about the ways in which the intentionality and the purpose and the power of God can utilize and redeem everyday objects? I wonder how many of you in your classrooms where you teach at school have had the opportunity to hold on and to utilize the clipboard of God. I wonder how many of you as soccer referees have ever put the whistle of God to your lips. Everything has redemptive potential. Everything can be used by God. This isn't a magic stick. I think sometimes we wish that there were like these magic items, you know, that we'd have like Captain America's shield and Wonder Woman's like, in the last service I said Wonder Woman's whip and there was a lady in the front that was like, it's a lasso. And I'm like, okay, sorry, sorry. I thought it was a whip. Sheesh. Why does she have a lasso in it? She's not a cowgirl. Okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. We don't have to get into that. But I think sometimes we wish we had these like magical items. But listen, we don't need magical items. What we need is the power of God at work through everyday items. The power of God at work through everyday people and circumstances. That's what we see. God says, the people who wanted to kill you are dead. Moses takes his family. He takes with him the staff of God. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. Well, that's kind of cool. Remember, the miracles that God had given to him, he gave to him, what? To win over the people of Israel. Moses had said, what if the people don't believe me, the Israelites? And God said, well, you can throw your staff down, it'll turn into a snake. Put your hand in your robe and pull it out, it'll have leprosy, and then put your hand back in, the leprosy will go away, and turn water to blood. I'm giving you these signs as a way to win over the people of Israel if they don't believe. Now it's interesting that God has said, I want you to utilize the same three signs before Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Utilize the same three signs. But look, there's a different effect. The same three signs, the same power of God on display, but it has an absolutely opposite effect. God says, I want you to perform before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, verse 21, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Isn't that interesting? The very same miracles that will put awe and wonder in the sights and in the eyes of the Israelites will harden the heart of Pharaoh. Now I know we start talking about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and all the Calvinists get really excited, right? Like, oh, he's gonna talk about predestination. I'm not going to today. So you have to come back in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about the ways in which Pharaoh's heart is hardened and what that means in a couple of weeks. But this morning, here's what you need to see. That the very same things that in one circumstance will win people to Christ in another circumstance 
will push them further away from Christ, and it has everything to do with the sovereignty of God. That's what you need to know. It has everything to do with the power of God. But sometimes the things we think will be the most advantageous end up hardening people and pushing them away. God says, I want you to do these same signs, but you need to know, Moses, you need to know in advance that Pharaoh's not gonna listen, that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened by the things you do. Pharaoh's heart will be hardened by me, and he will not let my people go. So I want you to say this to Pharaoh. I want you to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, this is verse 22, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Oh man, there's so much in that that's really interesting. I love the fact that God refers to his people as his son. You see, the people, the very same people that Pharaoh sees as slaves, God sees as sons and daughters. Same group of people, but they're seen completely different. God says, you've got my family, you've got my firstborn son, Israel, and you're causing them and you're forcing them to serve you. But they were created for something better. They were created for something more meaningful. My people, my firstborn son, the people of Israel, were created to serve me. And you've derailed them from their created purpose and you focused them on serving you, which isn't why I put them on the planet. So I want you to say to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, you've got my firstborn son. I want you to let him go so that he can serve me as he was built to do. They can serve me as they were built to do. And if you won't turn my firstborn son loose, then I will kill your firstborn son. You're gonna hold on to mine. You're gonna lose yours. Here's, here's what we see in this, though. He's talking about the Passover, right? We're gonna talk about the plagues in a couple of weeks. But sometimes I think when we think about the plagues, we're thinking that they sort of unfold over time. Like God is sort of surprised by them. Like he goes, uh, well, I tried to freak the people out with frogs and it didn't work, so uh, what else we got around here? Locusts? Yeah, let's send those. We'll see how it goes, right? The plagues and ultimately the Passover where every firstborn son in all of Egypt was killed by the angel of death if they did not have the blood upon the doorpost or the frame of their house That Passover was not something God did as a last-ditch effort. It was part of God's plan before Moses ever even got to Egypt. It was something God anticipated before he ever got there. What's God doing here? In this transitional season, in this time where Moses is being obedient and going to the place God has called him to do, God is instilling confidence in Moses. He's instilling confidence in him by saying, the people that wanted you dead aren't there anymore. You have my staff with you. Do the signs I've given you, but know that no matter what the response is, it won't be a surprise to me. I am in control. I've got the whole thing planned out and I will deliver my firstborn son at any cost. So you can go with confidence. It reminds me of Psalm 27. I love Psalm 27 verse one. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident, he says. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist here is confident, right? but it's not pride. He's not confident in himself or his own education or his own military might, his own strategic advantages. No, he says, I'm confident, but what? He's confident in the presence and the power of God. God comes alongside Moses in this transitional time and he says, Moses, don't forget who you're with. Don't forget what I'm gonna do. And you need to know in advance, I got the whole thing figured out. It's not gonna be easy, but I'm with you and it's gonna work. 
He's instilling confidence in Moses. We see courtesy on the part of Moses. We see confidence in the heart of Moses at the, at the, the voice of God. The third thing I want you to see, jump to the end of Exodus chapter four, that fourth movement, we see him finally meet up with Aaron, which is exactly what God said he would do. And so at the end of this text, this transitional text at the end, we see community. We've seen courtesy, we see uh, confidence, and then we see community at the end. Aaron meets him. It says in uh, verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. They're doing this thing together. The service of God is not a lone ranger thing. He doesn't call us to do things in isolation or by ourselves. He calls us to move together. And remember, this is a concession that God makes for Moses in sending Aaron. This is a demonstration of his grace. Now Moses and Aaron go together. They gather all the Israelite elders together and look at what happens. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the Lord, excuse me, and the people believed, right? And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Do you remember the argument that went on about this very thing? You remember when God said in Exodus 3, you're gonna go in front of the elders of Israel and they will listen to you. And Moses goes, but what if they don't listen to me, right? What happens? Moses and Aaron, they go together to the elders of Israel. They perform the signs. They declare what God has said. And the three words, the people believed. Simple as that. Just like God said. We have a tendency to overcomplicate things, but God understands the way things will turn out. They go in community. They declare what God is planning to do, that he's seen them, that he cares about them, that he's gonna set them free. And it's a beautiful end in this transitional phase of the people worshiping God together. Now look, if that's all that was in this chapter, if all that was in Exodus chapter four was Moses being courteous to Jethro and God instilling Moses with confidence and Moses and Aaron being in community and going to be obedient to God, it would be a fairly easy chapter. There's things we could walk away with, things we can learn like we've already talked about. But the weird part is that that's not all that's in this chapter. In the midst of those fairly unremarkable events, there is verses 24, 25, and 26 the third movement in the text that throw everything askew. Check it out. God has just spoken to Moses and said, I want you to speak to Pharaoh and tell him that if he doesn't give me my firstborn son, I will take his firstborn son. Then look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Okay, well, there's an interesting turn of events, right? All right, yeah, you know, he's traveling, doing the thing God told him to do, and God showed up and wants to kill somebody. All right. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What? What is it, what's going on? I mean, if you're, are you reading this with me? He goes to Jethro, give me permission. Jethro says, be blessed. God speaks to him. I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna go ahead. I know everything that's happening. Then God tries to murder him. And then he meets up with Aaron. And then, you know, it's like, what happened? You know, like we all sort of talk about, um, we all sort of talk about our family trips, right? On our drive back from Hume Lake yesterday, uh, we've got all four of our kids who were in camp this week. And of course, we're asking the questions like, how was camp and what did you do and what was your favorite part? And we're sort of reflecting on this great trip we've had. Can you, like, what's the conversation like with the kids after this, right? 
Like a couple years later, they're sitting around the table and Gershom, Moses' son's like, do you remember that one time when we were, um, we were gonna go to Egypt? You remember? And dad got us that cute donkey. It was such a nice donkey. It was so nice to be able to ride on a donkey. What was that donkey's name? Well, I don't remember. But do you remember then after that when God tried to murder one of us and mom circumcised me? That was the worst vacation ever. <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't wanna see any slides. You do not want to see any slides of this particular trip. You read this text and you have to ask yourself, like, what is happening here? And it only gets worse. Let me make it one step worse for you. Uh, This text is the one of the most confounding, if not the most confounding, section of verses in the Old Testament. Uh, It's one of the most enigmatic because the language is so unspecific. So do me a favor. Look at your Bible and see anywhere in 24, 25, and 26 where it says the word Moses... That's not actually in the original text. There are no proper names other than the name of the Lord in 24, 25, and 26. So if you take that out, it gets even more. Look, this is the way it reads in the original language. It basically says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. That's right. But we don't have any idea who that him is. So it could be the Lord meeting Moses, which probably makes the most sense because this text is about Moses. But Gershom and Eliezer, uh, Moses' sons, are also male, so that could be talking about either of his sons. It says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. We don't know if God's trying to put Moses to death, or Gershom, or Eliezer. There's lots of speculation on that. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. So we know somebody was circumcised, and we know it was one of Zipporah's sons, but we don't know which She took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. That Moses, that word Moses in the ESV is not in the original text. So what it says is she took the flint, she cut off her son's foreskin, and she touched his feet with it. And depending on who you talk to and which theologian you study, some of them will say, well, that him is Gershom's feet. She touches the foreskin to his feet as a symbol of the sacrifice. Some will say, like like it's translated in most of our Bibles, that she touches Moses' feet with it. Some will actually say they think she she touches the feet of the Lord with it. That this is a, a place where the angel of the Lord has actually grappled with Moses and is holding him to kill him, much like Moses rest, or excuse me, Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis. That this may be a physical manifestation of God and she touches the Lord's feet with the foreskin. No matter who she's touching with it, it's gross. Okay, so uh, it says, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her foreskin, son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me. But we don't know if she's talking to Moses or she's talking to one of her sons or we're talking to God. So he let him alone. We assume, we infer that when it says he let him alone, that's referring back to the fact that God wanted to kill somebody. So whoever it is that God wanted to kill, he does not kill because of what Zipporah does. That we're sure of. It was then she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Listen, if you think you know what's happening in these verses, you liar, right? You don't know. And I'm not a guy who wants to say with concrete like assurance that I know what's happening in the text. This could go a lot of different ways. This may be that God was threatening to kill Moses or one of his sons. It may be that Zipporah, she, she circumcises her son and then she touches her husband's feet or God's feet or her son's feet. We don't really know. There are lots of theories, lots of speculation. Can I tell you, in those moments where there is some vagary in, in the text, it doesn't behoove us. It's not wise for us to spend a ton of time coming up with theories and then sort of drawing a line in the sand and saying, I know what's happening because it's just never true. What we know in this text is that even though Moses had been courteous 
And even though Moses had been filled with confidence, even though he was in community eventually, and he's on the road that God had called him to, that God shows up and says, this isn't gonna work. And that somewhere along the way, God threatens to take the life of either Moses or his son because while Moses looked good from the outside, while Moses had the big faithfulness and the big obedience under control, he was headed to Egypt, he hadn't paid attention to the little obedience and the little faithfulness. It's very clear in the text. We don't know everything, but what we do know is that Zipporah took and circumcised one of her sons, which tells us that one of her sons, at least, was not circumcised. And God had very clearly said in Genesis 17, we won't read it now, but you can go back there. God had very clearly said, this will be a mark, a demonstration, that you are my people, that every male of Israel will be circumcised on his eighth day of life. Apparently, only one of these kids wasn't circumcised, which may lead us to believe that early on, Moses had circumcised that first son, just like I took the pack and play and the bouncy house and the whatever, and that over time, either because of conflict with Zipporah or because he got lackadaisical in adhering to the laws of God, or maybe he didn't think it was important, but by the time they get on this road, he's doing the big stuff right, and God shows up and says, this isn't enough. I don't just want faithfulness in the big thing. I don't just want you to be on the big road on the way to the big thing I've called you to. I also want you to be obedient to me in the tiny details. Luke chapter 16 verse 10 says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. I think sometimes for us, we feel like as long as we got the big major themes pointed in the right direction, then that's good. But what we learn from this is that God is deadly serious about being obeyed. That God is deadly serious in having his people adhere to the things he's commanded them to do. And that we aren't equipped or ready for big things until we've been obedient and compliant. The fourth thing I want you to see in the text, not only courtesy, not only confidence, not only community with his brother and the people, but compliance. Compliance is essential. Obedience to God. That's why Jesus will look at the Pharisees in Matthew and he'll say, you fools, he says, you hypocrites, you're, you're like a cup and a dish that are cleaned on the outside, but the inside is still corrupt. He says, first clean the outside of the cup and dish and then the inside will take care of itself. By the way, that does not work with actual dishes. I've tried to do that, so no dice. He says to them, you're like whitewashed tombs that are beautiful and ornately carved on the exterior, but inside are filled with dead men's bones and all kinds of rotting things. Jesus says it's not just about what you look like on the outside. It's not just like the outward faithfulness that matters. It's also about the inward faithfulness. And that should cause all of us to stop and pause and reflect, to look into our own self, to look into our own lives and evaluate the places in which we've been making little compromises. And maybe it's because we've been lazy. Maybe it's because we've been in arguments and we just want to make peace with people. Maybe it's because we just haven't really been caring what God wants in our lives. But I think that all of us here at EV Free, we've got some pretty big dreams, don't we? Don't we all feel a sense of the fact that God has called us to something great? We certainly live in a city and in a nation that needs God's people more than ever. I think we've got a clear sense of the fact that God can and wants to use us in a powerful way. But there is absolutely a responsibility for each and every one of us, not just to get excited about what God could do in a big way, but to get excited about serving him in the little things about being obedient in the little things. I wonder this morning if there may be some of you in this place who are harboring resentment or hatred or bitterness or jealousy or envy or malice, hypocrisy, deceit, 
All of those things that 1 Peter chapter 2 says, if you're growing up as a Christian, those have no place in your life. It says put them away and instead, like newborn babies, hungry for the pure spiritual milk that by it you will grow up into your salvation, if indeed you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I think we have to stop and think, are there things in my life that I've just sort of let be there? And I've said, well, it's enough. I'm going where God told me to go. I was cool to my father-in-law. I'm listening to what God's telling me. I'm joining up with other Christians. What difference does it make if I've done all these little nitty-gritty details? It matters a lot because God wants obedience more than sacrifice. Because God doesn't just care about the outside of the sepulcher. He doesn't just care about the outside of the cup and the dish. He cares about what's happening inside of us. It says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, I know we've got big dreams and big expectations, and I know sometimes we like to pat ourselves on the back for, you know, in sort of broad, sweeping terms, being obedient to God. But we as a family, as a community, as a church, as individuals, and as a community of people, we have to be looking internally and saying, what are the places where we've allowed sin to run rampant and we've done nothing about it? Where disobedience is just a way of life for us. Where we just become fine with it. It says in 1 John that if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it takes confession. It takes an awareness, admitting. I love the fact that Zipporah goes and she does this beautiful thing. It's a perfect picture of what Jesus does on our behalf. That Moses is either wrapped up in the arms of the angel of the Lord or Moses is so sick, close to death, that he can't do it himself. And so Zipporah goes and does what she does and she takes this bloody foreskin, which by the way would make a great name for a Christian metal band if you're thinking about starting one. You can have that free of charge. Bloody foreskin. Dun, 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 whatever, she takes it and she touches his feet with it. And there's this great picture of substitutionary atonement. That's a big theological word that means the blood of someone else shed for remission of sin. The blood of someone else shed on his behalf. Moses gets a taste of what we appreciate as followers of Jesus, that he died in our place and shed his blood on our behalf. I love the fact that Zipporah does this. This is one more place. We've seen it again and again, haven't we, in our study of Exodus, where women step up and take leadership and set an example. It's awesome that Zipporah does this. She does what needs to be done. She makes the sacrifice. And we're not sure whether she's upset with Moses, whether she's upset with God, but what she says is, I am a blood relative of yours. We are united in this sacrifice. I think we all have to look at our lives and go, yeah, it's awesome that we're being courteous and awesome that we're confident in who God is. It's great that we're in community with each other, but we, we must pay attention to the importance of compliance in the little things. And we have the opportunity this morning to, um, to have Steve Heifel here, who is our Western District representative. He's our superintendent for EFCA West. He's here this morning, and it's so fun to work in partnership with him to see all of the ways in which God is doing great things through the EFCA, both here and in other places. We have this privilege to have him come and share with us about what's happening. But listen, there's some big, broad things on the move, things we get to be plugged into, we get to pray for and be involved in. 
But we can't get so excited about the big things that we stop paying attention to the importance of simple obedience and the little things right here where we're at. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, God, that you would fortify our resolve in the places where we need confidence in you, but that, God, we wouldn't simply look at the text and go, oh, so that's what happened. We don't want to study your word as a historical document. We want to be moved by the power of your spirit working in conjunction with your word. God, would you move us? Help us to be faithful in the big moments and the little ones. Help us to be people who care more about honoring you with our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes than people who just look a certain way from the outside. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd love